If you have a Bible, please join me in Colossians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's page So, I'm going to read, uh, and you can follow along with me, but just before we do, I, a lot of times I'll pray uh, right before I read, but you know what I'd like to do today is I'd like us all to pray quietly where we are in our place, and just before we read the scriptures together, look at it together, just pray and say something to God like, Lord, speak. Have your way. You, t you can talk to God yourself. But just, let's just spend a few moments and just in quiet and uh, just ask God to speak to us. Okay? Let's do that. Dear Father, hear our prayers we make in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read down through the first 17 verses. But we're only going to cover 5 through 11 today. Hope that's the plan anyway. The word of God from Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these too, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these... Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Okay, so our text this morning, our passage this morning will come from 5 through 11, and I just want to say there's two main commands in this section. Two uh, words that are in the imperative um, mood. First of all, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then if you drop down to verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Those are the two structural pillars of this passage, put to death and put them all away. And he's talking about sin. I don't know if you think when you read the Bible, like, man, the Christian life is just too hard. There's no way. Uh, You know, I'll come to church and I'll listen to the pastor, but too much for me. I'm, I'm... I just can't do that. That's, that's too hard. Well, it's not just too hard. It's impossible. Unless Jesus changes your heart. And one of the things he does when he comes into a person's life is he helps them see the truth of who he is and that he died on that cross for their sins, for all their sins, past, present, and future, And he loves them and he wants them 
as his own and to be with him forever, he changes you. And one of the things he does is he puts his spirit in you. And it's a spirit, it's a resurrection spirit. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And we have been raised to a new way of life. And we have died to our old way of life. What I'm trying to say is becoming a Christian is far more than just making a decision for Jesus. A miracle happens in a person. A total transformation happens in a person. And when I say total, it's not perfect. It's far from it. But it's going to be. It's on the way to be. And one of the things he does is he puts his spirit in you, and it is a Holy Spirit. He, it's a he, it's a person, the Holy Spirit. He is passionate for Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the, his Galatian letter, he says, um, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Because the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things you please. And what Paul was trying to say to the Galatians is, being a Christian is it's a miraculous thing, but it's not easy. It's not autopilot. It's not like, oh, everything's rosy. I'm on my way to, to heaven. Everything's rosy. No, the flesh, there's still a thing that Paul calls the flesh that craves against the spirit in us and a lot of times trips us up. But here's the good news I love about Galatians 5. The spirit lusts against the flesh. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is passionate against the sins of the flesh. And if you're a Christian, he's in you. And he will not rest until your sin is dead at the feet of Jesus. But he calls you and he calls me to join him in that killing venture. Christians are not people who use violence uh, to bring God's judgment on the world but we are people who use violence against our own sins. Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ are violent people on the inside. And in case you were wondering where to spend all your frustration, spend it there. The two commands of this passage is, number one, put to death. Verse, let's just look at it again. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists, the first few things he lists are all sexually related sins. The first one, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. <clears throat> These things are very similar. The word uh, sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia where we get our word pornography. It's a broad term. Porneia means all sexual deviance. It can mean pornography. It can mean adultery. Any 
thing that deviates from God's design for sexuality, which is one man and one woman in the covenant bond of marriage for life, and it is beautiful. And everything, every deviance that twists that or perverts that is something to be killed in the life of a Christian. That's what it means to put to death. So, years ago I read a book by an old Puritan, uh, John Owen, on, on killing sin. It's called On Mortification of Sin. But I, I looked up an article this last week on, on the internet that talked about that, and I'm going to refer to that again a little later, but just listen to the way this, this, this article was written in 2022 by Grant Gaines, uh, a pastor down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. This is, you can find this on the Gospel Coalition website, but listen to what he says. The deadliest snake in the world is the Australian inland Taipan. The venom from one bite of this snake can kill a hundred full-grown adults. Imagine that you came home to find this venomous killer coiled up in your living room. What would you do? You would not encourage your kids to play with it. You would not keep it around as a pet. No, you would grab a shovel and aim for its head. We have something far more dangerous in our homes and in our hearts. Sin. Sadly, too many people play with sin instead of putting it to death. I'll come come back to this article a little bit later, but you know, that's true. The Australian inland taipan snake can kill you. But you can still go to to be with Jesus. The only thing that can keep you from Jesus for eternity is your sin. It's not somebody else's sin. It's not the devil. It's not a bad stock market. It's your sin. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Drew, you started the message off like saying, if you're a Christian, we're, we're, he paid for all of our sins. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But one of the things his spirit does is it comes into us and makes us warriors. And I'm calling you today, I'm calling myself to war. Uh, you know, you might be a nice little old lady here in our church. And you might say, Pastor Drew must be talking to the young men with their struggles with pornography. I'm talking to every one of us. Because every one of us has a venomous snake of sin still lingering in the corners somewhere. And we, we have to be vigilant and on our guard until Jesus comes. So... Christians, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to do something impossible. 
Those who belong to Jesus Christ have the spirit of Jesus in you. I'm saying, cooperating with that spirit, pick up a shovel and let's go after porneia or impurity, impure desires, passion, evil cravings. That's evil desire. Let's go after them. We, my, my wife and I were c- coming home from Asher's, celebrating Asher's second birthday this last weekend. Driving back from Milwaukee now. But we listened to a sermon by Francis Chan on leading a quiet life. It's a great sermon. I, I recommend it. I think it's on YouTube. But uh, anyway, uh, he said, you know, in our, in our day, our day and age that we live in today, we tend to post everything, or we take selfies of, of our, you know, we're having our quiet time. We got our coffee, we got our Bible, and uh, hey, we're spending time with Jesus. I think I'll take a selfie and send it to my friends and show them. And Francis Chan in his sermon says, we tend to hide our sins. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet in front of you so others can see how good, generous you are. He said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And when you, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners like the hypocrites and you who use many words so that they can be seen by people. When you pray, go into your closet, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Francis Chan's whole sermon was built on that, living that secret life. He goes, you know what we do in our church age today? We hide our sins and keep them secret, and we post our righteousness. Jesus flipped that around. He said, hide your righteousness. Go do your good deeds in secret. Don't tell everybody else. Post your sins. Confess your sins to one another. He said, I think we should start a new thing called Sinstagram. <laughs> you know, while he was preaching that sermon, the Spirit of God just touched my heart. And I said to my wife, I gotta post my sin. And I just, and you know, I, 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 do, I do believe we, we should be careful. Um, how we confess our sins, but we should confess our sins one to another. So I just confessed some of my own sins to my wife right there. And I think one of the ways we, we kill sin is by naming it, by getting it out of the closet and posting it. I mean, Francis Chan was right. Jesus said, get the sin out and confess it and do your righteous deeds in secret. It's, it's not that it's evil if someone sees you doing something good, but what's evil is doing it for people's applause and pe- to make an impression with people instead of to your Father in heaven. So I'm calling you, I'm calling me Let's go to battle against the snakes in our lives and in our hearts. 
he goes on to say, also covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, I don't know how you do, you, you do with the Ten Commandments, but the 10th the one is you shall not covet. That means have an unhealthy desire for something. It's just the word desire in, in the original language. It's just the word desire. Desires aren't bad, right? I mean, in Buddhism, they're bad, but the Bible never condemns desire per se. It's, it's where we direct our desires. Um, so, wanting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's car or your neighbor's stuff, these are, this is idolatry. This is something to be killed. Being discontent. I mean, covetousness, I think, is built on a bed of discontentment. You know, all the commercials on TV are designed to feed your discontent. Like, man, I need that truck. Or I need that security system. And and, uh, it's idolatry is what this is saying. Look at what he says in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why would he say that to Christians? He's, he's talking to Christians. I believe what he's saying is he's giving a warning. I, I want you to know something. I, I believe that once a person is born again, they cannot be lost. I do believe in the security of the believer, but I'll tell you something. There is a way to read the Bible where all the warnings of Scripture are just erased. Well, that must be talking about losing rewards. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. I remember saying to a pastor one time, that isn't losing rewards. That's going to hell. And the Bible warns Christians as well. Because if we continue in sin without fighting it and without remorse, we might end up finding ourselves, we were deceiving ourselves all along and be like those that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 on that day, say, Lord, Lord, look at all we did in your name. I went to Cement City Baptist Church. I had my quiet time. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. So we must take sin seriously. We must take the warnings of God's word seriously. The wrath of God is coming on people who cling to these things. So we must shake, shake them off. We must kill them. We must put them away. We must put them to death. And then he says, the the two reasons he gives is, number one, the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. And the second one, verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Remember your old life? Remember when you were in bondage to these things? Jesus had set you free. That's not you anymore. Be true. Be true to who you are. Remember Lion King? Uh, Simba, remember who you are. And that's exactly what the Bible's doing. It's calling us to be true to our identity in Christ. This is what you used to do. That's not you anymore. (laughs) 
He goes on. Now, the second main pillar in this text is found in verse, but you must put them all away. And he's not, now he shifts gears. He's not just talking about covetousness and sexually related sins, but he's even including anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from his mouth, from your mouth, and not lying to one another. And, and, and by the way, he's not trying to exhaust all the sins. He's just listing some that particularly erode societal community among believers. When we lie to each other, be careful, be careful. When you see somebody on a Sunday morning, and I know we, we always talk about this, but uh, how's it going? Oh, great. Well, is it really, really going great? Well, maybe not so much. But let's not slander. Let's not have malice or wrath. Now, talking to somebody just a minute ago, there is a time for righteous anger, right? But the Bible says be slow to anger. Be, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. God is slow to get angry. God, is, God does not wake up every morning grumpy or some mornings on the wrong side of the bed. He doesn't sleep, by the way, but I'm just saying that as an expression. He's not, he doesn't get hacked off quickly and just blow, blow his top. He has a long fuse. He's, he's known as one who is slow to anger. His anger is calculated. It is righteous anger. And he wants us to be in a similar way. If we're, The Bible says, be angry and sin not, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. But I remember Steve, when my son was three years old at the soccer field, Steve was teaching that to the kids. Let's be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And I'm thinking, yes. And the rest of that goes because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And so um, there's a difference between holy anger and human anger, or merely human anger, which is sinful, and we must put it away, put it to death, and put it away. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read 9 through 11. Don't, Don't lie to each other, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new, really, I think the best translation, the the better translation, you've put off the old man with its practices. You've stopped living in the pattern of Adam, and you've put on the new man, which is Jesus, the second Adam. You've put on Jesus Christ, and that in that new man, you are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're being shaped into the image of Jesus. And here, in this new man, in Jesus Verse 11, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. What he means is all the distinctions, all the things that tend to divide us don't matter in Christ. There is no religious or social class disparity between believers, but Christ is all and in all. What does that mean, that phrase? What does it mean 
Christ is all and in all. Well, let's take the second part first. When he says he's in all, I think what Paul means is Christ is in all believers equally. I love that song you, the, you worship team had us sing, We Are Forgiven. Lord, help us to see each other through that lens that as forgiven in Christ. Um, Christ is in all of us as believers. That means no one is unimportant in the body of Christ. But what's that first part mean? Christ is all. I think it means if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then all other differences don't matter. Those differences don't keep us apart. We have Christ. My, my brother or sister from another culture, a different skin color, it doesn't matter. Christ is all. What matters is Jesus Christ. You belong to the same Christ I belong to. We are one in him. Those differences actually serve to magnify the unifying power of Christ. An awful lot could be said on verse 11, but I'm going to finish by going to a conclusion and application. What are we supposed to do with this? And in the famous words of John Owen, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I just want to say that again, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We are never neutral. We're either going toward Christ, which involves putting our sins to death because our si the sins are the things that distract us from treasuring Him. So we're either killing our sin, moving toward Christ, or we are drifting away from Christ and sin is weaving its tentacles into our hearts and our affections. So there's, it's just no, there's no... Uh, Neutral ground, there's no rest stop where you just can rest and not worry about this, not think about this. Now, there will be someday. <laughs> Aren't you glad one of these days Jesus is going to say, you could put that shovel away. Hallelujah, hallelujah. But in the meantime, we are called to put away and to put to death the remaining sins that try to entangle us. And I've said, I try to say this in a lot of different ways, but the Christian life is not perfection, but a new direction, right? In fact, when you start following Jesus, sometimes you find it, life gets harder in some ways than it was before. Um, but I'm going to go back to... to just some practical helps from John Owen that this guy mentions. He, he kind of summarizes nine steps. Um, what is the shovel that we use to attack our sins? Owen gives us nine practical directives. And, you know, just, I'm just going to share them, and you can either write them down or just remember what sticks with you. Number one, diagnose sin's severity. Realize how severe it really is. When a person has struggled with sin for a long time, it's more difficult to kill 
This is especially the case if there's been long seasons that that person has indulged the sin rather than actively trying to kill it. Making excuses, justifying sinful behavior, or too quickly applying grace and mercy to a sin also contribute to sin's severity and lead to a hardened heart and conscience. Consider such factors when diagnosing a sin's severity because more severe struggle calls for more focused effort in putting it to death. So number one is recognize sin's severity or diagnose sin's severity. Number two in this list, grasp sin's serious consequences. Grasp the serious consequences of sin. Even for the Christian who has been declared righteous positionally, sin remains dangerous. John Owen outlines four dangers that sin poses for the believer. Number one, being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That comes right out of the book of um, Hebrews. Let's consider one another daily, lest any of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's number one. You don't have to remember all this. God's temporal discipline, losing peace and strength, and finally, the danger of eternal destruction. By continuing in sin, one may prove that he was never really converted. A Christian's sin grieves the Holy Spirit, like it says in Ephesians 4. It wounds the Lord Jesus, and it can cause a Christian to lose his or her usefulness for ministry. So the consequences of sin are really weighty when we allow it. So Owen's saying, first of all, diagnose it, its severity. Realize it's the seriousness of the consequences. And third, be convinced of your guilt. You know, we live in a world where everybody wants to say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. The Bible is, there is a thing called misplaced guilt or misplaced shame where the devil jumps on our back and, and tries to make us feel guilty for things we're not guilty of. But the Bible is not shy about calling a spade a spade. And when you have sinned, it's your fault. You can't blame it on the devil. You can't blame it on God. I mean, the devil didn't make you do it. You chose to do it. If somebody put a gun to your head and said, don't touch that computer mouse, I think you'd probably choose to not touch it. So, be convinced of your guilt. This is the third practical step. Understand guilt through the law and the gospel. First of all, bring the holy law of God into thy conscience, Owen writes. And lay thy corruption to it. Pray that thou mayest be affected with it. Meditate on biblical commands that speak to sin's sinfulness. Then also consider your sin in light of the cross. Ask yourself, why have I gone on sinning when I've been shown such grace and mercy? How can I show such contempt? So the third step, he says, is be convinced of your own guilt. The fourth step is earnestly desire deliverance. Earnestly desire deliverance. Knowing your great guilt, you can long for deliverance from sin. 
Why is this important? Because longing, breathing, and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself that hath a mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. Indeed, according to Owen, unless thou longest for deliverance, thou shalt not have it. And I just want to say, how much do you want to be free from your sin? And I'm talking to Drew Woods. How much, Drew, do you really want to be free from your sin? You know what I find in my evil heart sometimes? Well, I want to be free of it, kind of. And on other days, no, I love it. I'm a sick man. But I have a great Savior. (laughs) And so do you. The fifth thing Owen says is consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. Each person has a unique temperament and nature that makes certain sins harder to kill. Owen reminds us a proneness to some sins may doubtless lie in the natural temper and disposition of men. We are not less guilty for committing the sins to which we're prone, but when we know ourselves, we know the areas of our life where greater self-discipline is necessary. And number six, avoid occasions that incite sin or that tempt us. Avoid, Avoid temptation. You know, the Bible says flee from temptation. Stand against the devil, but when temptation comes, run away. Uh, So avoid occasions that incite sin. Consider the circumstances that attend your falling into sin and guard yourselves from them. Know that he that dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. If we want to stop sinning, we must avoid the slippery places that occasion our falls. Number seven, Address sin's first signs. We must be effective in putting sin to death when we rise up mightily against the first actings of our sinful desires. It's hard to stop water once it bursts into a flood. So too, it's hard to stop sin if we allow our desires for it to grow. Number eight, meditate on God's glory. We must not let it gain ground. Instead, we must turn from our sin to the excellency of the majesty of God. I remember last week, I said, God doesn't just tell us to avoid one thing without giving us something to replace it. And he's giving us his majesty. Meditate on the majesty of God. When we see God's glory, we see our sin's ugliness in contrast. Owen says it's especially helpful to consider how much of God's greatness that we don't know. It is but a little portion we know of him. It's hard for sin to flourish in a heart that's filled with a sense of God's majesty. And finally, number nine, don't rush to comfort yourself. When I read this, I thought, boy, I need, Drew Woods needs this one. Owen's final instruction comes in the form of a caution. Though we may experience guilt and conviction over sin, we should not assume that the sin is defeated. Sin is deceitful. It can trick us into thinking that we've dealt with it decisively when we have not. 
Owen warns us not to speak peace to ourselves before God speaks it, but rather to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. He warns that we may console ourselves falsely if we treat the process of repentance lightly. Don't show concern, or if we don't show concern for other sins, or if our consolation is not attended with the greatest detestation imaginable of the sin in reference. Sin is like an aggressive snake. If we do not proactively attack it, it will prove deadly. Thankfully, we are not alone in this fight. The power to kill sin comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. As we focus on snuffing out sin, we must also draw near to the throne of grace. It is there we will find grace to help in our time of need. Effort is necessary, but, as Owen says, mortification of any sin must be by a supply of grace. Of ourselves, we cannot do it. But that's the great thing about Jesus. He calls us and he helps us by his spirit. I know I've gone a little long, but I just, I think it's very, very important that we are serious about putting, putting our sin to, to flight and to fight against it. And in another place, I remember Owen years ago, he was, he has the illustration, he says, it's like strangling a man. Think of that sin as like a, a guy that's trying to kill you, and you're strangling him, and it takes time, and just keep squeezing until you squeeze the life juices out of that sin. And it may thrash and flail around, but don't give up. I mean, it's a graphic picture, but I, I need those kind of graphic pictures. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit of God, Holy Spirit God, come. Have your way with us. Do not, please, do not leave us to ourselves and to our sins. Hound us, haunt us, dominate us, deliver us from every evil desire and action and land us safe on heaven's shore. Lord, would you please help us? All the glory and praise will go to you. But you have, not, you have called us not to be passive in this life, but to be active and be violent against our own remaining sins. Would you help us to be true to our identity in you, Christ? And Lord, if there's any here today that are outside of Christ. I just pray, Lord, that you would bring them in. That you bring them to faith and repentance and a decisive change and swearing allegiance to King Jesus.
All our hopes are in you. We bank our, our hopes and our lives upon you. And we say all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.